three parts to this text. There's a parable, which I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to touch it. (laughs) Go and learn what it means (laughs) yourself. Then there's a lengthy discussion between Jesus and the disciples um, about the kingdom of heaven, and then a healing. So we're going to start at uh, verse 20. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it that you would like, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Notice he didn't say to her. He knows where this request came from. You, don't, you guys don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right and left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten other disciples heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. So Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lorded over themselves, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your slave. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as Messiah, the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to shut up. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and he called them. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. Lord, they answered, we want to see. And Jesus had compassion on them and he touched their eyes. And I love this. Immediately they received their sight and they followed him. This is God's word. You can be seated. So as I said, uh, chapter 20, uh, basically three parts, the parable, um, then this discussion, and then the healing. And when you look at the last verse of chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus says, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And so chapter 20 is really a flushing out or an explanation of this bold statement by Jesus. Because then when you get to the end of the parable in chapter 20, look at what Jesus says in verse 16. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. 
And then as you move further into chapter 20, into the heart of this text, Jesus concludes that whole roadside discussion that he has with his disciples by declaring, whoever wants to be great among you must become a slave, and whoever wants to be first must also become a slave. So here's the deal. When you place this in the whole of Matthew's gospel... And remember what Matthew's trying to do. Matthew is here to tell us who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And Matthew has told us now that Jesus is the new Moses and he's bringing the new Exodus. He's, he's freeing us from everything that plagues us. He's telling us that Jesus is the new Israel. He's the one through whom God is going to bring salvation to all the families of the earth. And the biggie that Matthew's telling us is this. Jesus is Messiah. He's the Davidic king who's going to usher in the kingdom of heaven. And what's the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's a lot of things, but its most simplistic thing is this. It's, it's, it's God's rule that breaks into chaos, bringing about new creation. And we've seen in Matthew's gospel that the kingdom of heaven is breaking in. And as it's breaking in, this collision is taking place. There's a collision that's going on between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven. It's a clash of kingdoms. And as Matthew's gospel is, is, is moving forward, it's moving towards this intense showdown between these two kingdoms. So the background to our text today is this. Jesus and his disciples, they're making aliyah. Does anybody know what aliyah is? Aliyah is to go to Jerusalem. Because aliyah means to ascend. And when you go to Jerusalem, you always ascend. The reason you ascend is not because it's elevated so high, but because God's temple is there. And temple is the place where heaven and earth meet. They're also making this aliyah with thousands of Jews, Jews from all over the world. Why? Passover. Okay, this is the most important uh, feast on the Jewish calendar. It's when, it's when God's people celebrate Exodus, when God unchained them, when God set them free. So what I want you to picture is this entourage, and it starts in, in, in chapter 19. They're making their, their way from the Gal- Galilee down to Jerusalem. I picture thousands of people following Jesus. And then I love this because it says large crowds followed him and he healed them. Imagine the excitement. Everything you've heard about Jesus. Maybe you've come from uh, Ephesus. Maybe you've come from Rome. Maybe you've come from Parthia. And all of a sudden you've heard all these things about Jesus and you're part of this entourage, all these people following Jesus, and Jesus just stops at some moment in the thing and, all right, who's sick? Who needs healing? And you're going to Jerusalem to celebrate New Exodus and all of a sudden it's starting to hit you. Oh, New Exodus. Here he is. He's finally come. He's unchaining us. He's healing us. Okay, so it's also in this context where Jesus, I think, has to pull these disciples and say for a third time to these guys, look, guys, you need to know, as you see this entourage, all these people following me, everything building here, you need to know that my aliyah 
is going to lead to my going down. I'm going to die. I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to hang on a Roman cross. But also know I'm going to be raised. Now it's in this context, the mother of the Thunder Brothers, that's what they're called, the sons of thunder, okay? James and John. She approaches Jesus with this request. Mrs. Zebedee, what do you want? I would like for each of my sons to sit at the right and left of your kingdom. Now, that's not only a bold statement, but this is a complete contradiction to everything that Jesus is about and to the values that permeate his movement. It tells me they don't get it. Because this discussion amongst the disciples has been going on for some time now. You go back to Matthew chapter 18, and and they're discussing amongst themselves, okay, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is it? And they ask Jesus this. And, and I know right now some of you are knocking these guys, but before we knock them, I want to ask this question. Are we any different? I mean, we live in a world today that's infatuated with being the greatest and being the best and being on top. You guys know I coach football, and I love it. But there's one event every year or I cringe. It's because these kids have to be put on teams. And so the way the system works is they have the pro day. And all the kids show up, and they, have a, they get a piece of paper with their name on it. And they go from station to station to station. And they write in personally their scores. How fast they were, how far they can jump, how quick they are, how big they are, how strong they are. And I watch these kids. I watch them because they're all going around and and, and they're comparing their piece of paper with other kids' pieces of paper. And I'm always looking at the little guy or the guy that can't run or the guy that can't throw the football, and my heart just breaks for that person. I watch this. And here's the deal. We never grow out of this. Because as we get older, the piece of paper just changes. And it's different things that, 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 that we put on our piece of paper that we carry around, whether it's our resume or whether it's our bank account or whether it, it, it's our ticket to this or our ticket to that. And see, it's in this context, if you remember, when they're arguing about who is the greatest, Jesus just kind of takes a child, asks this child to come up, And the reason he does this, because Jesus is into pictures. And children in that day had absolutely no rights, no status, and are at the very bottom. And Jesus points to this child and says, in my kingdom, this is greatness. Because in his kingdom, it's not about power, it's not about wealth, it's not about fame, it's not about popularity, it's not about being the best, it's not about being the richest, it's not about being on top, because greatness in Jesus' kingdom is becoming like a little child. 
Do we know that? And see, the disciples still don't get this. And I love the gracious way in which Jesus responds to Mrs. Zebedee because I think he could have just smoked her. But he also knows this. I mean, he knows that this request really isn't coming from her, but it's coming from James and John. And this is why Jesus looks at James and John and he says, you know, you guys don't even know what you're asking to sit at my right and my left. Do you know what they're asking? When is Jesus on the throne with king of the Jews above him? It's when he's hanging on a cross. You guys want to be at my right? You want to be at my left? You guys want to hang with me there? And now Jesus has to call the twelve... I have to imagine he's a bit devastated because he has poured himself into these guys for over three years and they still don't get it. But look at verse 25. Jesus called them together and he said, let me tell you guys something. Let me state the obvious. You guys know how the rulers of the world lorded over themselves And their high officials, how they exercise authority over them, but not with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your slave, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And see, evangelicals, we love that last verse. We love verse 28, where where, where it says, Jesus came to give his life as a ransom. Because a ransom for many, that word for there in the Greek means in the place of. In other words, Jesus is saying, I came to take your place. I came to be a substitute, to pay the debt that you could never pay. And so what we have here then is the great doctrine of substitutionary atonement. And we love this because this is a beautiful doctrine. But there's a larger context here that often gets missed. And that is the kind of king that Jesus is and the kind of values that permeate his kingdom, namely how power is done in the kingdom of heaven. And I'll tell you why we miss this. Because we're a bit narcissistic. We love to know what Christ does for me. He ransoms me. He he puts himself in my place and pays my debt. And then we take that and we just go on with our lives because we want to gloss over what we are to be to our world. See, look at verse 25. This is how the Gentiles and and, and the world does power. They lord it over. They leverage. They rule. They control. They dominate. What Jesus is saying is, this is not how power is done in my kingdom. Because look at verse 26. Power isn't done through the great and through those seeking to be great. 
power in Christ's kingdom is quite slave-like. It's to the least and the small and those seeking to be small. And it's not done through those seeking to be first and best, but for those who see themselves as last and people who live last. In fact, you know where this is all going? Literally, in a matter of days, Jesus will be standing before Pilate. In fact, there's that famous painting, Esse Homo, that I, I, I love. I think it's in Florence, and I want to just uh, show you that. Have you ever seen this before? Because here they are. Pilate, the representative of the world's kingdom. Jesus, the representative of God's kingdom. And as these two kingdoms are facing each other, what is it that they're talking about? In John 18, you have this whole lengthy discussion, and they're talking about their kingdoms. They're, they're, they're talking about power. And Jesus says something. He says, my kingdom is not of this wor- world. In fact, that little mistranslation of the word of, I think, has caused Christians throughout the last hundred of years to think Jesus' kingdom has nothing to do with this world when Jesus' kingdom has everything to do with this world. And because rather than my kingdom is not of this wor- world, the way it should really read, because that word in Greek is the word ek, which means from, it should say my kingdom is not from this world. In other words, Christ's kingdom is not just another kingdom like the other kingdoms of the world. It's not this survival of the fittest, strongest, smartest, and prettiest. It's not a kingdom where might, might rake makes right. It's not a kingdom where things are, are, are done through a sword. It's not where the rich hold rank. Because Jesus says to Pilate, he says, if my kingdom were from this world, my followers, guess what, would pick up their sword and fight because that's what the kingdoms of this world do. That's how they operate. But Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not that kind of kingdom. My kingdom is not from the world, but it's still for the world. And see, if you want to see how the kingdoms of this world do power. It's right in our text today. Look at chapter 20, verse 19. We didn't read this. But Jesus says, they will condemn him to death and they will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and to be flogged and to be crucified. Because here's the deal. When you stand in the way of Caesar, this is what he does to you. He crucifies you. In fact, Rome made the cross its symbol of power and victory long before the church did because to Rome, that's what the cross was. It was Rome's statement to the world that we're the ones who are, who are in charge and this is what we do to people who stand in our way. We mock you, we shame you, and we crucify you. And they crucified thousands of people every day year. But think about this. The God of the universe takes that crass symbol and he makes it his own symbol of victory and power. He subverts it. He turns it upside down because Christ on the cross is the power of God and the victory of God. 
over all the powers of the world. It is. And see, Jesus didn't win by using the methods of the world. He didn't win by taking power, by taking a throne, by building an empire, by unleashing great armies. The one with all the power won by giving up power, by becoming last, the servant. And as we learn Christmas, this isn't just some curveball that God is now throwing at the world because God, through his prophet Isaiah, he, 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 God told the world that his Christ would be a servant, the servant, a suffering servant, and that by his wounds, he would heal, save, and redeem. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Christ on the cross is the greatest power the world has ever seen. It's real power. You know what Tertullian said? He said the blood of the martyrs. You put us on crosses and it's seed. It's the seed of the church. Because see, this is how God's power works in the world. And it's not just in Christ, but it's also in us. It's it's not through this lording over, but through serving. It's not your life for me, my life for you. Here's my question. Do we get this? Because I'm going to tell you something. We live in Rome. We are surrounded by the values of Rome. Our world screams at us. That power is all about that little piece of paper that we all carry around. That's power. Whether it's your bank account, whether it's your resume, whatever that is that gives you leverage in the world. And here's the deal. Many of us just think, you know, we can believe in, Je- in Jesus but live like Rome. <laughs> and tell you something, we'll never bring the kingdom of heaven in by using the methods of the world. It doesn't happen that way. And even more importantly, we're called to be disciples. You know what a disciple is? A disciple is someone who who seeks with all their heart to become like Jesus, to walk like Jesus, to follow Jesus, to go Jesus' way. So the way a, a, a disciple sees the world is, is the same way that Jesus sees the world. And, and therefore, we see the world through this radically subversive lens. We, we see the world upside down. Where the least and the last and the lost and the little ones are seen as first and best as the greatest... Because remember what Westy said, he said the ones entering the kingdom of heaven are are, are the one-eyed and the one-armed and the lame. And conversely, those that the world says are the best and the greatest, we see as the last and the least. Because Jesus says it, the last will be first and the first will be last. And see, what I want us to know as well is that when Jesus says this, he has in mind a, a, a whole lot more than just economic standing. 
He also has in mind those who are spiritually last, those who are spiritually on the bottom, the poor in spirit, he says. Blessed are they, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he says, Pharisee and pastor and priest, you better watch out because the prostitutes and the sinners are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. He said these kind of things. Are we listening? In fact, you know what? I I, I know that if Jesus right now walked into this room, you know who his heart would gravitate towards? He would not scan this room and say, hmm, where are the strongest, where are the prettiest, where, where are the wealthiest? His heart would gravitate towards the least, the last, the poor, the prostitutes, the outcasts, and his heart would find them. I want to push this still further. A disciple is not only one who sees the world upside down, but a disciple is someone who lives upside down. We live these radically subversive, cross-shaped lives where life is no longer about me because me and my ego right now are hanging up there on that cross so my life can be poured out for others. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but now Christ lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We're crucified with him. And so that means instead of living to get power and to, to lord it over others, a disciple is someone who lives to actually give up power and to serve. And, and, and rather than seeking always to get more and to have more and to hoard it all, a disciple is someone who lives to give and to give it away, to give it up. It's no longer your life for my life. It's my life for your life. And money is just money. It's easy come, it's easy go. And marriage is is not for my happiness, but it's a place for me to lay down my life and serve. And my career isn't something that's here to serve me, but it simply becomes the place where I can be with people with a towel in my hand and wash feet. That's a disciple. And you see how a few disciples like Christ can change the world? Because living a cross-shaped life is real power. It's the power that changes a marriage. It's the power that changes a neighborhood. It's the power that changes me. We're never going to bring in or usher in the kingdom of heaven by using the world's methods. If we don't get this, it's game over. If we don't realize how hard it is to get this, living in this culture, we're not going to get it. We need to get it. Now, how are we going to get it? I mean, where do we get the power to live this way? It's just something that we just, every morning, we're just going to will ourselves. I'm just going to will myself this morning to see the world upside down. I'm just going to will myself today to to, to live upside down. I'm just going to be a servant. I'm going to wash feet. 
guys laugh because you know that's not going to work. Here's the power. And it's an awesome power. Jesus is our ransom. Do you even know right now what this means? Ransom means to unchain somebody. It means to buy a person out of slavery. It's the payment that's made to set someone free. So what this assumes then, without directly saying, is that you and I are slaves. And that we right now owe a debt greater than even our own lives. And see, even all of this completely flies in the face of modern assumptions today because today we think we're free. We think we're the most free people on earth. And yet it's funny to me because while we insist on believing this, I mean, just look at us. I mean, look at how people are slaves to themselves, slaves to their feelings. Everybody's so touchy today, temperamental. We're always thinking about ourselves. We're tweeting about ourselves. We're promoting ourselves. We're obsessed with ourselves. And think about how we're slaves to all these idols, whether it's our stuff or whether it's our image or whether it's our work or whether it's a relationship or a substance or a sport or just our screens, our screens. Can you live without your screen? I don't think we've ever lived in such bondage. But see, not only are we slaves to ourselves and to our idols, here's the deal. We need to know this. We owe a debt to God greater than our own life. It's the debt of sin that all of us must pay. Boy, that's a politically incorrect thought. But I don't know if you remember this, 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 this guy, Kip Kinkle, years ago, who went to his parents' house with a shotgun and point-blank shot him and killed him. And he, he, he had a sister who, in the courtroom, just pleaded with the judge and just said, Judge, would you please, 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 please have compassion on my brother? And the judge looked at her and said, there's a price to be paid for every bullet. And there is. Because God is holy. There's a price to be paid for every bullet. There's a price to be paid for every wrong. There's a price to be paid for every injustice. There's a price to be paid for every sin. And who's going to do this? The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to pay the debt. The debt of sin that we all owe. And he came to pay it to set us free. And do you know what kind of price it cost him? I mean, Jesus uses this image of the cup that he must drink in verse 22. And the cup in the Bible is something very, very specific. Whether you read Isaiah 51, verse 17, or Jeremiah 25, it's in the Psalms. It's in other places in the prophets. The cup is God's anger for all sin. 
And see, some of you right now, you just bristle at this idea that God gets angry and that God punishes sin. Well, let me ask you something. Have you ever been wronged? Or has someone you love ever been wronged or violated? Because I'm going to tell you right now, if someone would wrong one of my kids or violate them or violate my wife, I'd burn with anger. Some of you are artists, and and you know that feeling of of putting time and energy into something that you've just created. But but, but imagine someone just kind of flippantly comes along and, and misuses that work of art, or abuses it, or violates it. See, that's what sin is. It's violating God's good creation. It's violating his majestic work of art. And the love of God is furious. It's furious. Because he loves, he absolutely loves the world he has made. And when his creation is violate, violated in any way, it infuriates him. And someone must pay. His anger must be poured out. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? That cup that contains all God's anger for all sin, Jesus is saying, that's my cup to drink. In fact, if you've ever wondered why Jesus is so horrified in Gethsemane, it, it's not really the torturous death that's, that's awaiting him. But it's because at that moment, God places the, the, the cup before the son and says, son, are you willing to drink it? And Jesus it says, begin to sweat drops of blood over this cup. And he says, take it away. But not my will. Your will be done. And on the cross, Jesus became our ransom. He paid the debt of sin. He took upon himself all God's anger for all our sin. And he paid it all. And this is the gospel. And I want you to see that when you see the gospel and you believe the gospel, how freeing it is. It frees you from this need to be the best. It frees you from from this need to carry this sheet of paper around all your life, trying to prove your worth and your dignity. Because basically, the gospel writes two things on our sheet of paper. Number one, Jesus on the cross tells me, I am more sinful. I'm that sinful that the God of the universe would have to do that for me, to get me. I'm a debtor. I'm a debtor. And if I'm that and I know that about myself, you tell me how I can look at anyone and think I'm better than anyone when I know that the God of the universe had to hang on a cross to get me. See, Christ on a cross also (laughs) says this, that I'm more loved than I could ever imagine myself to be loved. That he loves me that much. And see, then here is my dignity and my worth. 
It's not my accomplishments. It's, it's not in anything that I can do or anything that I need to perform. It's, it's that the God of the universe is crazy about me. He's so crazy about me that he was willing to actually do that for me. And see, when I see this, and this burns inside of me, this is what compels me then to serve and to give my life away to others. Because the God of the universe, he became least. He became last. He became a slave for me. He gave his life up for me. This is why we serve, because he served us. This is why we give our life away, because he gave his life away for us. This is the power that comes into our lives so we can live upside-down lives. And see, here's the deal. I don't care how often you've been to church. I don't care how good you think you are. I don't even care about how much uh, you think you know about the Bible. Here's the deal. Until you and I see our debt, until it burns inside of us that we are debtors, but then we see Christ dying to pay that debt, ransoming us, setting us free. Until we see that, I'll tell you what we are. We're blind, blind. And I think that's why this section ends with the story of these two blind men. Because it tells us they're on the roadside. In fact, Mark's gospel uh, tells us that they're not just blind, but they're on the roadside begging. They're, they're, They're beggars. They're blind beggars. Because for any beggar, the most strategic place to beg would be the most public place. So every day, to their shame and embarrassment, they'd find the most heavily trafficked place and they'd put themselves out there, all their need, all their begging for everyone to see. And think about this. This day comes when Jesus comes. And as Jesus approaches, I, 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 I want... I want you to see these guys. I I, I want you to feel this intense longing and excitement in their hearts. They unashamedly cry and yell with all their might, Lord, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. You know what the people did? They scolded them. Shut up, you guys. You're an embarrassment to yourself. You know what? That's what Christians do all the time when we see need like that and people going public with their need, but they don't stop. It only causes them to shout that much louder. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on us. When's the last time you've gone public with your need like that? When's the last time you just put it out there like that? Do you know who gets Jesus' attention the most? It's not those with a great moral report card. It's, it's, it, it's not our going to church. It's not even our, our Bible reading. It's not giving to the poor. It, it's not even presenting to him what we might think would be perfect faith. It's It's, it's need. It's need. That's what gets Jesus' attention. You know the irony here? These blind men see Jesus more clearly than anyone else. Do you hear what they're saying? (laughs) Jesus, son of David, 
That's Jesus, King Jesus, King Jesus, Jesus, you are the King. See, I'd like to say that the disciples see this, but they're still seeking the wrong things. I wish I could say the religious leaders in this massive crowd that's traveling with Jesus uh, could also see this, but in my opinion, they're curious at best. I mean, Jesus is still just Jesus to them, but not to these two blind beggars. They can't see with their physical eyes, but their hearts can see. And how often do we see this in the Gospels over and over again? It's not the insider that sees, it's the outsider. It's not the rich, it's the poor. It's not the religious, it's the sinner. It's not the priest or the Pharisee, but it's the pimp and the prostitute. It's not the greatest of these, it's the least of these. And I say to you, go away and learn what this means. Because what is most lacking today, I think, in the American church is this deep sense of our need for Jesus. Did you come here today because you need him? Because you, you need him. Or did you come here to just learn a few more things? Did you come here so you could perform? Did you come, why did you come Do you see him? Are you still blind? You are a debtor. Stop hiding. Stop performing. And like these beggars, go public with your need and just get to him. Trust him. Follow him. I like what Mark's gospel says about the story because Mark gives us the name of one of these guys. One of these guys is, is, is Bartimaeus, which is an Aramaic name, which means this, son of defilement, or better yet, son of scum. Probably given this name because he's a beggar. But Mark, I like the way he puts this because he says Bartimaeus, but then he adds, that is son of Timaeus, which is now in Greek, and in Greek, Timaeus means honor. In other words... <laughs> The son of scum, Mark says, becomes the son of honor. Because this is what, we, what happens when we come to Jesus with all of our need and all of our defilement. We go from being sons and daughters of scum to being sons and daughters of honor. From, from, from beggars under the table to children at his table. Because the first will be last. And the last will be first. Go and learn what that means. Let's pray. Jesus, you're just the best. Because at the end of the day, only the fool would say that they have anything to offer you but their need. But when we really humble ourselves under your almighty hand, God, we, our hearts know, our hearts know that the only thing that we can offer one who is so righteous and so holy is nothing, nothing else but our need. And I just pray this morning, God, that you would open blind eyes. That we could see who we are apart from you.
and that we could see you for who you are and we can see what we have when we come to you. In Jesus' name.